A top CEO was well known for his superior leadership, his massive wealth, and his sound investing strategies. He had a plan to dramatically further and expand his enterprise by entrusting large amounts of his wealth to three trusted company leaders. They needed to buy into his plan and execute it without delay. What he wanted them to do was to grow the capital that he had given them by investing wisely. He gave to each a trust according to each experience and initiative. One he entrusted $4.5 million, the other $1.8, and the other $900,000. The stakes were high. There would be no turning back. The success of the enterprise rested on these three men. At a later time, all three of these men were invited to file a report on what they had done and how they had grown the entrusted amount. Did they invest wisely? Did they uh, take initiative? Did they take any risks for gain? The first invested, I don't know, in iPhone stocks and doubled his trust. The second invested in Google and did the same. But the third decided to do it the old-fashioned way, to take what was entrusted to him, put it in a box, and put that box under his bed, preserving all that he'd been entrusted, lest he lose the lot. According to the story, the third man was fired. Why? Simply on the grounds that he didn't use what he had. Did he deserve what he got? That's the question that needs to be asked here this morning. I mean, he didn't lose a cent of the trust, did he? He didn't lose a cent of the trust. Let me make it more difficult. What would you think if God handed you a trust suited to your ability, whether natural or acquired, to handle it for him in his absence, but you didn't improve on the trust? You just kept it intact. And when he asked to give an account of it, you were informed that that was it. The show's over. Heaven's doors have been closed to you. Would you get what you deserved? By the sounds of the parable of the talents that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 25, it seems as though Jesus taught this very concept. Now, you'd be excused perhaps at this particular point for insisting that salvation, heaven, eternal life is offered only on the grounds of faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through works, right? Oh, we're saved by grace through faith, that's right. Then how is heaven denied a follower of Jesus just because he or she failed to invest what they had been entrusted by God wisely? Would that person, he or she, be getting what they deserved? If we found ourselves in the same boat, would we? I'd like to submit that this may be a difficult dilemma, maybe even confusing to those who don't quite see the full biblical picture of this thing called the plan of salvation. And that's okay if that person is willing to learn. The parable of the talents up opens our eyes and helps us understand the full picture of the plan of salvation, helps us experience 
uh, know what the experience of salvation is, helps us from, keeps us from falling off, so to speak, or at least misunderstanding what salvation really entails. And if we come to terms with the lessons behind this parable, then we'll be well on our way to making the necessary preparations for the soon return of Jesus. Because here in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus taught four stories, teaching us in Matthew 24, what would be taking place on the earth prior to Jesus' return, and then the stories teaching us how God's people ought to be living in preparation for that great day of Jesus' return. And so we'll be well on our way, if we understand this parable correctly, to preparing for that great day of Jesus Christ. Now, before we begin, just want you to picture with me a peach tree, a peach tree. Below the ground, the roots are unseen on that peach tree. There's the trunk, and then you've got the, le- the branches, then the leaves, and then hopefully you've got fruit, especially if you're a peach fan like me. Simply remember, simply remember that in the dis- this discourse that faith in Christ is likened to those roots of that peach tree. Faith in Christ is like the roots of that peach tree and the Christian work like the peaches. Remember that as we approach the parable, that it's the roots that determine the quality of the fruits, if you please. So let's go to Matthew 25. You're there already. Let's take a look. Matthew 25, and we'll read verses 14. We'll read the entire story together. Matthew 25, 14. Then the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. Verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside these. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you would be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and my coming. At my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him. Give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Basically, friends, and there's the parable of the tent of the talents. Basically, friends, the theme of this parable has more to do 
with our first serv- has more t- has to do with our first service to God and to mankind, which is the development of ourselves for the glory of God and the benefit of humanity. Once a person has accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, their very first loving duty is self-development, is self-development. That is the process by which a person's abilities are gradually developed, you see. Now, this may sound heavy. It may sound difficult to someone who is mostly perhaps self-serving or concerned only with preserving him or herself, or for those who want Jesus to forgive them their sins, but not to help him over, have him help you overcome your sins. This topic, however, irrespective of where you, what you're thinking at this point, is necessary for each of us to understand. Again, it has to do with how God's people live in the last days previous to Jesus' coming. The Bible's emphasis on self-development runs like a thread through its beautiful pages. We're not asked anywhere to compare ourselves or measure ourselves with each other, but to become all that we can become as laborers together with Jesus and thus do the greatest amount of good that we can possibly do for our Lord who's in glory, you see. Whatever our natural or acquired abilities may be, each of us are given the opportunities in this life to improve on what we have and to give towards someone else's needs. That's the reason for the gifts, the talents that we've been given, you see. That's why we should pay close attention to developing everything that will improve us wherever we are or whatever kind of work we may be doing. And improving these personal areas really reflects the intent of the parable of the talent. So what are those areas in which we are to develop? To, to develop? What areas should we be growing in? There are many different areas. I want to focus on three here this morning. The first one. Now, this is a quiz for you. Don't put the slide up on the screen just yet. Here's the quiz. What container will have a greater capacity to retain more the more you put something into it? What container What container will have a greater capacity to retain more the more you put something into it? The brain. That's exactly right. The mind. And so that's the first talent, the brain. That's an area that needs to be developed. What do you say? Look look with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Notice what what Moses wrote here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Notice how important it is to develop our brains, our minds. The human mind... Uh, is not used at its full capacity, and, and it probably won't be until we see Jesus in the clouds of glory. And this mortal shall put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruption. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, notice what the Bible says. Uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God asks us to love Him with all of our hearts, our souls, and our minds. That's something that He's asking us to do, and we can't love God or love Him with all of our minds if we are not developing our minds. And while formal training is needed and appropriate, the need for continued education or self-education is imperative. Our learning doesn't stop when we graduate from school. For all those who are in school, college, and you're saying, man, no more learning after that. Sorry, 
Bad news, good news actually, our learning continues. We need to be self-educated. And while there are many things to study and many things to grasp and grapple with of utmost importance for each of us is the study of the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And this book is calculated, we're told in the book Steps to Christ, to calculate the mind like nothing else as, as it wrestles with problems, hard problems as in search for divine truth. The mind will expand and develop acquiring power and efficiency. And know this, an ordinary mind that is well-disciplined will accomplish more than a highly educated mind that has no self-control. And so the one area that needs improvement, that needs development, is our minds, our brains, right? Another area that needs development is the development of voice, the development of voice. We must all get into the habit of learning to speak with an Australian accent. We must all do that. Um, you, you know, it's not the language. English is not necessarily the language of heaven. I understand it's Spanish, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm insisting. I'm insisting that it's with an English uh, Australian accent. So, we all need to develop the gift of voice, the gift of speech. Of all the talents that we have received from God. None is more capable of being a greater blessing to others or curse than our speech. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 and 37. For our speech to be pure and for our speech to be a blessing and uplifting to humanity, for our speech to be all that God desires it to be, we need a heart transformation. From, from the abundance of the mouth, from the, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. But notice, he goes on to say here, what he goes on to say in verse 36 and 37. He says, but I say to you, that for every idle word men shall speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Consider that the way we speak as well will give either force to our words or they will detract from our words. Imagine with me a courtroom scene for just a moment. The judge is about to deliver the verdict. It's a solemn moment. It's a life or it's a death moment. And out of the mouth of the judge comes a high-pitched, squeaky rattle of words that no one can understand, wondering whether they are actually in a courtroom or whether they're in the circus. Just imagine that. When we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus and the way He had with words. He spoke in a way that commended the truth He taught to His hearers. They understood the true importance of His own words just by listening to the way He spoke what He spoke. Some speak very shyly and very softly. Others talk harshly and very severely. But both probably need an adjustment so our daily discussions, we don't give a false impression, especially when we're talking about eternal realities. Uh, if we speak about them unimpassioned, we could lead the hearer to feel as though uh, salvation, eternal realities aren't that important at all. Why bother at all? Sometimes in our zeal, maybe we're too excessive in our passion, and therefore we have the ability to cheapen the message now, there's a time to speak gently, and there's a time to speak earnestly. What we need is grace. Grace sprinkled on our lips so we get the timing right, and by God's grace, bless more people with our words. What do you say? Amen. So, 
God wants to develop our minds. God wants to develop our speech, our voice. Also, He wants, number three, He wants us to develop our influence, our influence. You've heard the saying, no man is an island. Each of us, our lives affect the life of another person, whether we like it or whether we don't. Every person that, uh, that is here today, even myself, is surrounded with an atmosphere. That atmosphere can be charged with life and courage and hope and love, or it can be charged with gruffness, indifference, chilliness, gloominess, or poison. Look at Luke chapter 15, what the Bible writer says about Jesus. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. What type of influence did Jesus have? What atmosphere surrounded Him? Notice Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It says, And all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near Him to hear Him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you think Jesus' atmosphere, the atmosphere that surrounded Jesus, was charged with life and hope and love and acceptance? Or with disdain and hate and uh, uncomfortableness and irritation? What do you think? With love, right? With acceptance. Insomuch that people were drawn to him. It was like, he was like a big magnet big magnet and his love and his acceptance of people, not behavior, but of people, drew them to him. And the, and the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were mystified. How is this possible? And in their condemnation, they actually reveal the reason. This man receives sinners. He receives them. He receives them to himself. Jesus' life was charged with energy and love and grace, and that's what exuded from him. Each one of us here today is affected each person is affected consciously or unconsciously by this atmosphere. This is something we cannot escape from. It's not something that we can be excused from. Our words, even our actions, even the way we dress, our deportment, our attitude and our expressions have an influence for good or an influence for ill. What we want is that which is beautifully expressed in the following words, I'll put that up on the screen, Christ Object Lessons, page 340, the silent witness of a true, unselfish, godly life carries an almost irresistible influence. By revealing in our own life the character of Christ, we cooperate with Him in the work of doing what, friends? Saving souls. So these are the three areas that I wanted to focus on this morning, the, the development of the mind, the development of our voice, and the development of our influence. And naturally, there are many other areas of development. We're going to put a few up on the screen for you. The development of our talents are not, in, are not limited to even these, time and money and health and appearance and social skills and economic know-how and concern for accuracy, willingness to take advice, etc., etc., all of these things are, are talents entrusted to us that by God's grace can be improved upon and make us useful in our homes, in our churches, in our church, and in our communities wherever we reside. Well, we might ask if, what's, if what self-development has to do with being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Self-development is the only real way for a person to be ready for the call to serve. No one is exempt or excused. 
Everybody has some ability given to them from God to love others and to render service to others. Our response to the daily call to serve others is a test of our fitness to live with God forever. When we get to heaven, is heaven going to be a place where we're just going about doing our own personal things? Heaven's going to be a place where we serve others. Uh, you know, we even have uh, insight from the page of, pages of inspiration that we'll be, we'll be sharing our testimony with planets and people on other planets that have never fallen, don't know what sin is. They've only been watching uh, the experiment taking place here on planet Earth. The Bible says that we are like, we're, we're the stage, we're the actors, we're the theater to the entire universe. Love is really self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing service, isn't it? What's the opposite of love? It's not hate. It's selfishness. Yeah, selfishness. True love, biblical love, is serving others. And of course, as the parable teaches, none can be truly helpful overnight. It takes time. Think about medical professionals. We have some here today who've taken years and years to develop the skills and know-how, the knowledge, the ability to help people the way they help them today. They've taken years to get to that point. Uh, Those who remain cool and competent under each emergency won't be relying either on their schooling. They'll be ever freshing up, reading the latest research, improving on what they already do so well. Lawyers and teachers and plumbers and stone managers and stone makers and managers and pastors and all the other uh, will be developing and growing in their service and improving on their past because self-development is the road to genuine service that truly loves God and loves others. Christians who know this, Christians who understand this realize that it takes more than sympathy when somebody hurts. When somebody's in, let's say, physical distress or spiritual depression or even suffering morally, we ought to be able to do then more than sympathize, to do something substantial enough to bring some type of relief to the individual. God's end-time people, those living before Jesus returns, will be doing more than standing by, wide-eyed, chins drooping on the ground when there is an apparent need around them. They will be prepared or preparing themselves to relieve distress as God seeks to use them to comfort and help others. But there is an uncomfortable reality in this particular parable that we started with. The end of the one who refuses to accept the ever-increasing opportunity to grow, to serve and to develop their moral, mental, physical, social powers. And it's very sad. The fate of all who make themselves the center of their own universe is chilling. In Matthew chapter 25 through 26 to 30, Jesus said, you wicked and lazy servant, take his talent from him. And then he's cast where? Into outer darkness. This individual, he or she goes down on record as someone who's determined to have his or her own way in their lives. They're proven, according to the story, unfit to save. These individuals couldn't be trusted with eternal life. It's sad. It's sad because the lazy servant in this story who played it safe was an accepted church member. This person wasn't an open sinner. His sin was not some great evil. His sin was that he had not done for himself and thus for others. He rebelled against the law of self-development. A humorous little poem entitled, Opportunities Missed 
I read this not too long ago, and it reads, There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when, he was, when, when one day he passed away, his insurance was denied, for since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. And for all those who may feel as though they are in the same boat, it's not too late to learn from the lessons from the parable of the talent. However, as we close here, I want us to keep something very important in mind. The law of self-development is not all demand, all task, and all work. If Jesus stopped here, he would be laying an impossible weight on each of our shoulders, asking more than we can give, depressing us as if self-development was all there was to our existence. The gospel is certainly not all demand and obligation, amen? That would be a new type of legalism. It would be righteousness by performance, you see, or righteousness by self-development. It would be like a mum and dad telling their child who live in Northern California how far it is to drive down to Southern California because down there is Legoland and they tell them how long it's going to take and how many miles. And it's be considerably disappointing and discouraging to that young toddler as they try to wrap their minds around it. To the young person's mind, they're going to think the trip's going to take how long? Forever. And they're going to be always asking the question, are we there yet? Remember, remember as we began, the roots determine the what? The fruits, right? The roots determine the fruits. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. All Jesus' biddings are His enablings. What He says we should do, He gives us grace and power to do. He's provided power for every possibility. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. It is light. And this gives us encouragement. The seeming impossible now becomes possible. I don't have to do it on my own. I can enjoy doing it all along the way because I'm yoked up with Jesus. Jesus is helping me every step of the day. So when mum and dad tried to explain how long it would take to get from Northern California to Southern California, their three-year-old, trusting and abiding in his parents' love, simply responded, that's okay. We can just ride our bikes then. We can just ride our bikes. You see, friends, with Jesus, the trip won't be too long won't be too heavy, and won't be too demanding either. In childlike faith, we can too say, that's okay, we'll just ride our bikes. We'll be all too glad to develop because our real motive to grow is rooted in the one we truly love, and that is Jesus, and that is Jesus. As I close, I'd like to share with you another little poem, and it says simply this, I cannot work my soul to save, for that the Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. That's the way, the right way to do things, isn't it? Isn't this the type of experience you desire? Then begin today. Begin today and see what the Lord will do for you, in you, and through you as you throw yourself, your talents into his work by his grace through faith in him. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.